You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 49. Today our special guest is Peter Kington, and we're discussing Chinese medicine for male fertility and some of the trickier aspects of treatment for male fertility in the clinic. Hi everybody, I'm Fiona Gitchum. And I'm Claire Pyers. And today we're talking with Peter Kington. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. We're going to be talking with Peter today about male fertility. Peter hails from Brisbane, Australia. He is an acupuncture and Chinese medicine practitioner with a special interest in men's and women's health, pregnancy and IVF support. Peter has been presenting professional development seminars to colleagues since 2010 and where possible contributes papers to acupuncture and Chinese medicine conferences. Peter currently presents about 12 professional development seminars each year for Sun Herbal across Australia and New Zealand. In 2017, Peter presented four days of seminar material for eLotus based in California. Peter has also taught acupuncture to undergraduate students at the Endeavour College of Natural Health. In addition to his Chinese medicine qualifications, Peter holds a Master's of Reproductive Medicine from the Medicine Faculty within the University of New South Wales. Peter also holds a Master's degree in History and American Studies and a Graduate Certificate in Higher Education and a Bachelor's degree in Politics and History. When he's not working, Peter likes eating nice food, drinking good coffee and sampling fine wine. All invitations will be gratefully accepted. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favorite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's episode. And if you really do enjoy listening to our show, please rate us on iTunes. Hi, Peter, and welcome to the Heavenly Chi podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. So you're working in your clinic mostly in the field of fertility. Is that correct? Yes, I I still like to think of myself as a generalist at heart, but my career trajectory has been that people just sort of found me for fertility. And um, so that kind of piqued my interest and these days, you know, probably the bulk of my clients are either trying to be pregnant or are pregnant, and then probably about a quarter of them are just general style treatment for other conditions. Mm, great. And I'm particularly interested that you picked the topic of male fertility today, because as most of us know, this is an area that does need more focus and need to be brought more to the forefront when we're working with fertility. For many of us who have worked in fertility with Chinese medicine, we'd be pretty familiar with the scenario that usually it's going to be the female partner that books in with us. And we may need to go through a process with the patient of educating them or inviting them to bring in also their male partner for treatment. So I'd love to hear from you how it is that you came to focus on the topic of male fertility and um, what it is that you can share with us today. Yeah, I probably like most people when I studied, I don't think I was ever actually taught about men's fertility. 
And in fact, when I studied, we weren't even really taught about the concept of fertility per se. Um, we learned more about menstrual disorders. And I think there was probably a passing reference to some male conditions like dampedes in the lower jowl that might manifest as something like prostatitis or something like that. But there was certainly no real focus on what to do in that inevitable situation that someone's seeing you for fertility support. And yes, it's usually the female half of a relationship that comes first. When they say to you, well, my husband's also got poor sperm. And I can remember the very first time that ever happened and someone said to me, do you think you could help him? And you know, I was in a phase where I was building a practice and I said, oh yes, of course I can. But I didn't actually really know that much about what it was that I thought I'd be helping. And that was really the moment that started my journey down that path. And I came to realize pretty quickly that there was this paradox that most of the time, the men who were sitting in front of me were generally pretty young. They were generally very fit. They were often had excellent diets. And when you went through the, the basic questioning process from a Chinese medicine point of view, they ticked all the boxes. And I'd kind of sit there and scratch my head and think, well, where do I go next? <laughs> so my inquiring mind led me down a path, a bit of a, a rabbit warren, where I thought, well, maybe I need to know a little bit more about the medical side of this. And so I busied myself with learning about how Western medicine would arrive at a diagnosis of male subfertility or infertility. And that took me to the semen analysis, which then took me to trying to figure out how I could work with something like that, because I kind of saw the semen analysis as an expression of the gene. And it was an expression of the gene or a statement about the, the gene that was better than anything I could get from that. Like I couldn't get that information by asking questions because it just wasn't possible for a man to say to me, oh yes, well I look at my ejaculate and I can see that I've only got 30 million sperm in it. And so I came to understand that <laughs> I, needed to, I needed to know more about the biomedical approach because I thought that the biomedical approach would help me to fill the gaps in my own diagnosis and then treatment strategy, and then in terms of outcomes. Um, so that's really where it came from. It was born out of a lack of knowledge on my part. And then over time, it's it's been kind of embracing this <clears throat> amalgam of two systems and putting them together that I think the semen analysis is not the, the most perfect diagnostic test either, but it's probably the best test that we've got so if we've got that there and we've got our system of medicine that sits over there, they kind of, at the end of the day, confirm each other. And it's contingent on being able to interpret that analysis in a Chinese medicine model that allows us to then cover that off as being you know, a pattern differential diagnosis, for example. I think you bring up a really good point that the topic of male fertility in Chinese medicine uh, isn't generally covered very thoroughly in the courses, at least for those of us that that did study uh, at least a decade ago or more. Um, and I, I think that that's because the um, the crisis in fertility and in male fertility is really fairly a recent 
development as well. So there's been so many practitioners who've probably been on a similar path as well, just looking for other sources of information and, and ways that they can start to learn how to translate um, what they're seeing in the pathology. And of course, that's something Claire's done so much work on too. Yeah, and I think also it's, the other thing is that we, we have learnt much more about male fertility as a result of IVF. And as a, as a medical treatment, although, you know, the early IVF um, experiments, if you want to call them, that um, came out of Britain in the 1970s. And then Australia was certainly a, a pioneering nation for IVF research from the 80s onwards. It really uh, hasn't been until IVF medicine figured out the, uh, how they could downregulate a woman's cycle to micro manipulate a cycle that put a sharper focus on the male side of it because we then started to look at sperm under microscopes. And so really our knowledge of the sperm and the male half of conception is really, really just in its infancy. It's, it's really only been something that medical science has started to really make advances towards in the last 25 or so years. So there's a lot that we don't know. So I think that while it's on one hand, we can say, well, those of us that might've studied over 10 years ago really didn't learn or not. I think sitting alongside of that is that it was still very much in its infancy in a biomedical sense as well. So the more that biomedicine can share with us about spermatogenesis and for the potential causes for pathology, and that's another whole gray area that we really still don't understand, um, you know, our medicine will nicely dovetail with that, I think, as, as time marches on. So I still think that we're probably just at the tip of the iceberg. You know, I tend to agree, and part of that, um, I guess part of the dilemma with, with modern medicine is that they're really torn between, you know, they're seeing the, the decline in um, a lot of the parameters for semen analysis, um, you know, and particularly in the last, well, just looking at over the last 30 years, the way that the reference ranges for the WHO criteria for sperm analysis has just continued to decline you know we used to be looking for 200 million per mil now we're happy with 15 million we used to be happy with 50 percent more normal morphology and now we're happy with four percent um and you know similar things have happened with progressive motility and now we're looking more at dna fragmentation and things like that and and this i think they've probably overshot the mark a little bit too far in terms of you know, what's the bare minimum that we're looking at in terms of, you know, before we're going to classify a man as being subfertile. There's a lot of discussion in the literature around, you know, we don't want to unnecessarily, unnecessarily classify a man as being subfertile when he could potentially still, you know, sire a child. Um, but then on the other hand, there's a lot of seemingly unnecessary treatments directed at women because that's where a lot of the um, a lot of the sciences, there's a lot more that you can do for a woman. Um, and it all just seems to be still kind of evening out. I don't think we've found that sweet spot yet where um, where conventional medicine at least has, has worked out exactly, um, yeah, that they've worked out exactly where that, where that sweet spot is. But, you know, the semen analysis is really important because, you know, as you say, you know, men men are coming in and they 
they're seemingly healthy and, you know, ask any man and he feels fertile enough to be able to, you know, inseminate every woman in the known universe. And <laughs> and unless yeah. unless you're actually measuring these things, you know, men don't necessarily know if they're ejaculating one mil or four mils or five mils of sperm, of, of, um, of seed. <laughs> and, you know, like typically, you know, and culturally speaking, men don't pay as much attention to their health as women do. Um, so right. there's lots of layers that's involved in all of this. I think also the thing, if I might add to something that you've just said, that those reference ranges with the WHO are now seen as the the worst case scenario in able to be able to support ICSI or yeah. intracytoplasmic sperm injection. So the semen analysis now doesn't even really reflect. So those those earlier figures that you mentioned from 30 years ago, that was before we had ICSI. And for those people who don't know what ICSI is, ICSI is an advanced level of IVF where it's indicated for severe male factor infertility, usually poor motility, usually poor morphology. And so what, what will happen is that the woman will have a stimulated cycle and then on the day that the egg retrieval is completed, the, the man will provide his sample, which is standard for all IVF. But where there's known uh, poor motility or poor, which is the way sperm move, or poor morphology, which is the way they're shaped, rather than just placing sperm and egg together, which is the more traditional pathway for IVF, they will select the most visually viable sperm under a microscope and they inject it directly into the egg to create the embryo by that means. So these, that's the solution from a biomedical point of view for poor or, or subfertility. And so those reference ranges are the reference ranges which support that process but it's questionable and I would think highly unlikely that if somebody was sitting at the bottom of those reference ranges, that their likelihood of a natural conception, while not impossible, is probably nigh on possible <laughs> because we're actually talking about quite significantly low numbers. So well, if anything, it probably understates the problem somewhat. It's it's huge. I mean, even looking at the... The, um, the WHO ranges from the year 2000 and because I've run the numbers on this, I do this with all the male patients in my clinic because I find that running the numbers for most of them gets them on board. That, you know, in the year 2000 it was 100 million per mil, it was 30% normal morphology and it was 75% progressive motility. And it's dropped now to 15 million per mil, 35% progressive motility and 4% normal morphology. And if you actually run the numbers on that, then the like the benchmark has dropped by 99% in terms of number of viable sperm per ejaculate. 99% in 15 years is just, there is, you know, it's too much to be even talking about, you know, is this going to work for... Yeah, we're definitely not talking about what's going to work for natural conception. You need to have you need to have at least ten to fourteen million viable sperm per ejaculate for natural conception to occur. From what I've seen in my patients, I think in general there's a really absent element of this conversation, um, and that is that 
This is quite a significant fertility crisis for the species. And I think that part of the, you know, the industry uh, behind the IVF that is guiding the reference ranges that, you know, loop back into the industry, as you were explaining, Peter, I think part of the way that they're controlling this conversation really means that it's quite surprising for men to hear all this information in the clinic, even in this day and age with those kind of stark figures. Yeah, and it's, we touched on this before, but I think that there's a, there's a lot about the psychology of men that really interests me. And I have next to no zero interest in ever going back and studying another undergraduate degree. But if I could do a, an undergraduate or postgraduate study in the psychology of men and male fertility, I think that it would be extremely revealing because my observation over 15 or so years of working with men is, first of all, that men are incredibly ignorant. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but they're ignorant of their, their reproductive function because, and I tell this story to men because I want them to know that I get their reluctance because there is this, this subtext of reluctance. Um, and I say to them, you know, most men think that because they started to masturbate when they were 13 or 14 years old and they had a successful ejaculation, that that was somehow a statement of their virility and their emerging masculinity because they were able to do that. And they understood that. But what it does is that it embeds this culture that it's all about you know, that, their, that their sexual function is, is this statement about their, their masculinity. And they're none the wiser that what they're actually ejaculating may well have been blank from the age of 14 or 15. You know, they could actually have been inherited this and no one would know any different. And where a young woman may start menstruating at 13 or 14 and then she gets heavy periods and she has pain and so her mum recognises that as being something that's debilitating for her. And so mum takes her off to the doctor and usually what happens is they put them on the pill. Um, so that process for, for the female is very much medically entrenched because here's a problem, here's a pill. Now, we also know that that creates problems down the track. But I think it because women have that, that monthly cycle from a... Uh, you know, reasonably young age, women are much more a alert to changes in their cycle, and so that that might mean something. B, they're much more in tune with their bodies because they feel the fluctuations of the cycle, and they, there's certainly a physiological basis to that with pulsations of GnRH and FSH that make women feel different at different points in their cycle. Where while the physiology of spermatogenesis is the same, and it's the same hormones essentially coming out of the hypothalamic pituitary glands men don't have those peaks and troughs and so you know the young male just feels aroused and so they do what they have to do and they're none the wiser and it's not really until you know 15 or 20 years later they've met the person that they're going to be with and they decide they want to start a family and then that hasn't happened and then invariably it's the woman who ends up going through the, the battery of tests first. And if I could have a dollar for every time I've had this conversation and I said, so has Bob been tested? And they say, no, we thought we'd just wait a little bit longer. Meanwhile, they've had transvaginal ultrasounds and they've had laparoscopies and everything else. And then it turns out that it's actually probably Bob. So 
you know, I think there's two aspects to that. I think the structure of medicine is sexist and it's, its assumption is that it's probably the female. And then secondly, there's a lack of willingness on the male because I think that they've been enculturated from a young age to step back from that. And I think that's that, that idea of early intervention or early awareness, we, we miss that significantly because there's half of, half of the story that just gets missed until it's almost too late. You know, I really love that perspective, Peter, and uh, I think I might start quoting you. <laughs> um, you know, I think all of us who work in the world of um, natural reproductive medicine, you know, we have the same conversations with our patients day in, day out. And, you know, women, as you say, they're off having transvaginal ultrasounds and they're having laparoscopies and they're going under general anaesthetic and, you know, and the, the male partner is sitting on the sidelines scoffing at the idea of producing a sperm sample when no one has at this stage asked to even see his penis or see him, you know, it's, it's um, the, the level of invasiveness for women is so much more pronounced and that's even before, um, you know, before things can get even more um, complicated with you know IVF and injections and medications and so forth where again the only thing that needs to happen is is for him to provide a sample on uh, on the egg collection day you know he doesn't if he's lucky he might get told you need to take a multivitamin and maybe some CoQ10 and you know some antioxidants but most of the time there's nothing that's given for him to to do there's no game plan there's no action plan and I think that um, you know, as much as, as much as, you know, medicine is very sexist. Um, and I think that's been going on since even before the time of Henry VIII, where all of his wives who, you know, couldn't bear him children. And they were the ones who shouldered the blame for what was likely his health problems. Um, yeah. but you know, I think that men today also, you know, we need to give them some credit. Like if they're actually they become aware of what's going on and they realise it's a problem. It's okay, you know, they're man enough to, to be able to deal with that information but they need a game plan. Men generally need an action plan. They're like, right, what do I do about it? Tell me what's the 10 steps. They'll do every step if they know that there's a process for them to follow. And I think that, you know, it's up to us to be really vocal in being able to provide that dialogue for them and provide some structure for them. I also think that the way we educate young men about their bodies is really a big issue as well. Because if I, I'll share a story, many years ago now, I had a, a couple, uh, well, a lady, she came to see me and she was having IVF. And she asked me whether I thought her husband would benefit from some treatment. And I said, yes. So I don't actually exactly remember now what, what it was that was about him that would benefit but there was obviously a reason because it was a long time ago but I, when he came he you know any person who's worked with a male will have had this experience they walk in the door they would probably rather have a have somebody uh, you know rip their eyeballs out than have to sit in front of you and discuss their sexual function so he walks in and he sits down and he averts his eyes from me we barely make eye contact. 
um, and we have this awkward conversation and I really don't get any information, but he's more than happy to talk about his tennis elbow. So we talk about the tennis elbow, <laughs> even though he's actually there because he's supposed to be getting some fertility support. Yeah. And he lets me do acupuncture on his tennis elbow, even though I've reassured him that I will not be putting needles into his testes. And so that's what we focus on. And then the next time he comes, he asks a few more questions and we get down this path of eventually edging towards the reason that he was supposed to be there in the first place. And we actually really, as individuals, didn't share a lot in common, but I've had a lot of experience in my life of making small talk with people I have nothing in common with. That's been my whole professional life, you know, it's making people feel valued and at the center of the space and all those sorts of things. So I was, chatting with him about things that interested him. And then he says to me, can I ask you a question? And I had that little moment where I got the little goosebump run up my arm because I thought, oh, the door's opened. You know, I, I, I could sense that we were getting there. And he said, I'm really worried that I'm the problem. And I said, why, why do you think that? And he said, because I've got a really little one and I don't think that I'm getting in far enough. And so the sperm aren't getting to the egg. And that was a real epiphany for me because he didn't understand enough about how male fertility works and that sperm move and, you know, they, you know, he does it. And, and that was all rooted in. We, we then had an open conversation about that. It's about what he'd seen in porn. And he developed all these unrealistic expectations about what his virility was supposed to be and what his genitalia was supposed to be based on what he'd seen in by watching porn. And he was carrying this enormous angst, enormous angst about this. And having that that conversation where I could then just, you know, reassure him that, you know, the physiology of male reproduction and female reproduction, because, you know, we tend to look at them isolated, but when there's intercourse happening, of course, there's an interplay between cervical mucus and semen that makes it easy, easier for sperm to get to where they have to go. But, you know, having that conversation with him, um, you know, lifted that weight off his shoulder. So I come back to this thing that we are Chinese medicine practitioners or complementary medicine practitioners, but I think that we absolutely have to know something about physiology because it explains it, you know, these, these important conversations are, can be door openers for people. And, you know, they eventually did have children, that, that couple as well. But it was, you know, for me, that was a real turning point in my decision to know more as well. You know, that's so, it's so interesting the way that, we take a lot of, I mean, there's a, there's a big learning curve, I think, um, you know, as you, as you described earlier in each of, each of the practitioners that I know who specialise in um, infertility and treating fertility have done a lot of additional study of some sort. But I think, you know, a lot of the information can be categorised by us as common sense or common knowledge. And, you know, sometimes having patients like that can serve as a really great reminder that, you know, the information that we know and that we understand about the way that reproduction happens 
it's just it's not common knowledge and sometimes just sharing that knowledge with your patients in a way that they can understand can make a really really big difference for them whether it's you know whether it comes down to that that's the reason that they're not pregnant or even if it's just to help them feel just to help them feel better about their scenario if they've got some kind of misconception that um you know it's it's a really important role that we can play for our patients and that's a great story it's one of the goals of um it's one of the goals of good of good practice i think that we dispel myths and knowing stuff is as a practitioner is how we dispel myths you know we don't i i always struggle when um someone says oh i read on the internet that you know if i stick my legs up the wall and uh, drink warm tea that that's going to help implantation <laughs> what do you think about that you know and uh, i just i hose that stuff down because i don't have a, a, any intellectual authority on that i don't know and i'm very comfortable saying to people when they ask me things like that i don't know <laughs> but I do make sure that what I do know, I know well, <laughs> and I can be very confident in presenting, you know, good good factual information to people. And men, men are left brain, you know. If we if we want to do that, men are Mars and women are Venus thing. <laughs> and men are much more left brain, and they're less emotionally invested in having children. They might want children, but they don't have the same type of emotional investment that a woman does because, for those same physiological reasons there's fluctuations intense fluctuations and changes in the fluctuations in female reproductive hormones that make them feel horny at the midpoint of their cycle because they're surging with estrogen and lh but men don't get that men are always on they're always ready to go and you know there's just that there's a different psychology with men that we can't if we work with women we have to know how to work with women but if we work with men, we have to know how to work with men. And men have that much more left brain trajectory. And uh, earlier, Claire, I think you said about, you know, going through the story with them and the facts and crunching the numbers. They like that sort of detail. And they just want to know, how can you help me? And they're probably not that interested in knowing that, that their stressful work day that involves getting up at 4.30 and going for a run and then coming home and then getting in the car and being at work at six o'clock for a conference call to Brazil and then being getting home at eight o'clock at night, that the stress that comes with that could actually be detrimental to them. They're not really that interested in that unless they can see it translated into numbers. So again, knowing something of the physiology where we can say, well, you might not feel stressed per se, but that type of lifestyle can potentially do this and this and this to the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis and that could cause this and that ties in with your semen analysis are there other things that you do peter in terms of specifically treating this demographic the male fertility patient that differ to other ways that you may communicate with or educate your patients Yes, one of the things that I've established over the years is I send men a questionnaire before they come and it asks them questions about all the things that they don't want to tell you necessarily, <laughs> that they can put it in writing. You know, I love the pre-questionnaire. Yeah, I, I used to have one for women and then I thought, actually, I don't really need to do this with women because women are an open book. They'll, they're used to saying whatever they need to say about their body 
and I'd always get, I always felt like I got what I needed to get. So I kind of ditched, ditched the female one, but I have always found great value in this male questionnaire because I'll ask questions like, how many times on average a week would you have intercourse? And they might put one. And then the next question will be, how many times a week do you ejaculate? Without actually saying it, but what I'm essentially asking them is, well, how much do you masturbate? And quite often it will be six or seven times. Um, so they often don't like to tell you that verbally because men find it very difficult to have that honest discussion because, you know, there's all sorts of cultural um, taboos around what you do in the privacy of your own shower cubicle. So, you know, I find great value in those questions. And I ask things about, you know, pain. Do they experience pain during ejaculation or do they experience it after ejaculation? Um, just the, the types, it's not a long questionnaire. It's only probably two and a half or three pages long, but it's basically questions around their sexual function, which is the sticking point for a lot of men because they have trouble articulating that. Or I also think that a lot of men have trouble being honest about it because they don't want to feel judged by it. Now, maybe because I'm a male, um, that might be a different dynamic as well in in the treatment room as opposed to female. And, you know, both of you would be able to give a different perspective on that. Um, and I have found over the years, I think that as men have certainly, or as IVF has become more common, I think the issues around male fertility probably are, there's a greater level of awareness. And I think that if we compare, say, a client that we might see in 2017, as opposed to that man that I saw back in 2005 that was worried about the length of his penis, um, I think I've, I'm seeing less of that type of thing now, because I think the men that we get are probably a little bit more exposed to the, the greater knowledge. But certainly as a man, I've, um, I, I used to find a certain level of reticence in having those conversations with me. So there, I, that's why I developed that questionnaire. And sometimes I, um, I focus quite heavily on that. It just depends on what they say in the questionnaire. Often I find that they'll eventually tell me a different story to what's in the questionnaire anyway, as, as time goes on. And that's, that trust develops between me and them. Mm. Yeah. I think the questionnaire is a great idea and that, um, definitely inspires me to get get myself into gear to actually get that done because we've got a we've got a um a women's well we have a women's questionnaire and a, and a man's questionnaire but we don't have a fertility specific male section um which I think is really important because you know I've had I've had patients where you know there's there's problems with where the man doesn't get a morning erection, for example, so has problems with yeah. with getting an erection, but doesn't have a morning erection, which is obviously a big, a bigger problem. Yeah. And there's you know yeah, other, right, like. other information as well that can be um, it can be really hard to to get from within the confines of the consult and and just touching on your point of the male versus female practitioner. Um, I guess, you know, we all have our own individual ways of interacting with patients, but I do either directly or indirectly hint at that I'm not going to ask my patient to take his pants off. You know, even though we're talking about fertility, we're treating fertility, 
I'm not going to put needles anywhere near his his genital area. And I, I, I try and cover that off. I mean, I like, you know, it's funny. But, I, you know, I try and cover that off in the in the first 10 to 15 minutes because then you kind of, you can, there's a palpable relaxation that comes after that. Yes. You know, and like I said. <laughs> I have that as an FAQ on my website. Um, you mentioned, Claire, in about the men who wake up with the morning erection. So, you know, one of the things that I do other than um, work as a practitioner, of course, is that I teach these seminars. And... The, the very first seminars that I ever taught were about men's and women's health and fertility. And I think one of the questions that I have on that questionnaire is about that, is about the morning erection. Because if there's, a, you know, if there's an issue, especially of erectile dysfunction, there can be, it, there's probably two very common pathways um, in that. And the first one is that it's a hormonal issue. And or that it's a psychological issue. So some men, and, and we also know that the erectile function certainly is not necessarily linked to libido. So a lot of men don't understand the difference between the ability to achieve an erection as opposed to achieve and maintain an erection to orgasm as opposed to desire. So there's, there's three different things there. And I actually try and tease that out in that questionnaire. So I ask a question around their desire and I get them to scale it on the one to 10. 10 being can't get enough and actually use those words on the scale. Can't get enough. And one being can I have a cup of tea? So, and I use that they're the two parameters on the, on the end of the scale. So I get them to rate their overall desire for intercourse. And then I ask them, do they frequently, and I think, frequently not necessarily every day but frequently wake with an erection and then i ask them do they have difficulty achieving an erection in the company of another person do they have difficulty achieving an erection in their own company do they have difficulty achieving orgasm in the company of another person and do they have difficulty achieving orgasm in their own company so by structuring the questions in that way, it kind of filters out whether or not there's a predominance of psycho-emotional, which would be typical of the person that might be able to achieve the erection, but then they lose it, so therefore they can't ejaculate, as opposed to the person who just has trouble having erections. And that could be telling us two different things about whether our focus needs to be on the psycho-emotional aspect of it or on the physiological aspect of it. Hello. Yeah, we're having a, we're having a pause. We're both sitting here thinking, who's going to talk next? I was just, I was just kind of, gone. I was kind of typing up some of the parameters that are on your questionnaires. But I think it's, you know, it's really such a great way to open the conversation. So yeah, that's all it is. It's a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also a kind of a respectful, I think since the internet's developed and we've all kind of text and email and write to each other a lot more than we used to, I think that writing is also considered to be a little bit more of a personal space where you can respond in your own way, in your own time, without being watched, you know. So there's there's a little bit more space there with the writing. Yeah, and I, I also asked the question about pre-ejaculate whether or not men have that, you know, because it's it's kind of like 
the male equivalent of the cervical mucus. You know, I have to then explain that and I say, well, you know, when you become sexually aroused, do you notice that you sometimes get a clear, watery, like but sticky and stretchy sort of mucus that comes out the end of the penis, but this is before you ejaculate. And, you know, so then I explained to them the significance of it is that, you know, men, where women have the front door, middle door and back door, men have a, a common outlet for their urine and their semen. And that the nature of that common outlet is that you're urinating much more than you ejaculate. So it can become hostile to the semen. So the idea of the pre-ejaculate is that it kind of lines the urethra so that it allows for this, the, the protection of the semen and the sperm while they make their way through it. And so again, that's, a, that's something that a lot of men, some men produce much more of it. And so they are abundantly aware of it. Other men produce much less of it and perhaps don't really know it's there or haven't really thought much about it because they've just probably seen it as part of the overall package of ejaculate that comes, you know, like they might not have necessarily focused on it. So putting those sorts of technical type questions into a questionnaire gives them time to reflect on it. And, and I might not actually act on that information at the very beginning of the, the consultation process. You know, I might actually let that sit for a couple of sessions and then I'll come back to some of those things. If I get that sense that this is a person who's not overly comfortable having the conversation in the first instance, but we build that rapport, then sometimes I'll go back to that questionnaire and start asking a few more follow-up questions, knowing that I'll probably get much more reliable answers. If, you, if you've got men who are completing this information on the questionnaire, even if you don't necessarily bring it up within the consult, are you taking that information into account with what you're doing with them from the start? Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I mean, I don't always do it that way. Um, I'm probably more likely to do it that way if I think there's enough evidence sitting in front of me to give me a, a clear starting point. And then I might go back to it later on just to confirm that. But having said that, if I was... The person was presenting in front of me and I wasn't getting a clear picture then I, I might and I felt like the vibe was okay then you know I will ask the questions it, it, it's very much a situational thing I can't say to you with absolute surety that it's one or the other it, it kind of just depends on the person in the moment I think and how do you deal with I mean obviously we we mentioned it earlier um, that you know when men have objections to treatment how do you deal with with the objections like the, the varying levels of, of objection well I get a bit blunt and I just say to them you know no one forces you to be here <laughs> and then I just let let it sit you know I'm going to provide the same level of care and treatment that I would provide whether they were enthusiastic embraces um, and I'm a bit post that. I'm a bit post trying to convince people that they have to do something about it um, because I find that quite exhausting. Mm. And I think that it's a recipe for burnout. And I'm very happy for people to move on if they've got their the psychology, their psychology just doesn't let them participate because I'm after the, uh, from a looking for the ideal client, I'm looking for the client that wants to respect and embrace 
the, the treatment that I can give them. And if they don't want to do that, that's their business. It, I don't see that as any reflection on me. And I know that's not what you were asking, but I, I, you know, I don't see that as any reflection on me. And I, if I kind of, I guess, take a bit of a more holistic view that if the influence that I've had on them might have been for four or five weeks and then they decide that they just don't want to come, well, you know, they have their reasons for that, but my influence is still there in the, in the grander scheme of things. Um, so I, I guess over time I've had to develop strategies of not carrying that or taking that on board because it, it is men will self-sabotage the process very, very easily if they're not comfortable. And I find they're not comfortable if they feel like they're pressured mm. into doing something that they don't necessarily want to do. And that's a relationship dynamic. That's not my dynamic. Yeah, I think you're making a great point there anyway about the role of convincing and that you're kind of post-convincer because not only is it unhealthy for you, but I think if, if anyone's going to be convincing anyone to participate in fertility, it needs to be uh, the other partner. It's kind of the domain of the relationship for them to have already decided that before they turn up with you. Yeah, and I, th I think it comes back to that same dynamic that we talked about a while ago that... Um, it comes back to women being much more available to their bodies and aware of their bodies and aware that sometimes the body doesn't do what it's supposed to do and where men don't have that that culture you know they they're young and they might start you know exploring their sexuality by masturbating for example and they get caught doing that and they get laughed at or they feel shamed by it so they don't feel comfortable talking about it and they can't distinguish between those you know, between looking at a dirty magazine under the bed sheets with a torch when they're 14, as opposed to taking some responsibility and ownership for their half of conception. And I think that there's, there is a direct line between those two things. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a direct line between looking at a problem and finding a solution, especially when they can divest the solution to somebody else in the relationship. <laughs> I'm, I'm sounding like a man-hater, but I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just very realistic about all of that. I, you know, I'm not, I've done it long enough now to see a common theme. It just, it, it happens. Well, and that's yeah. what plays out in clinic. It, you know, it plays out every day. You know, we've, we've all had women who are coming in and they're saying, well, I'm here, I want you to try and help me get pregnant. Um, and my partner doesn't want to bar of it. He doesn't. You know, he doesn't even want to eat vegetables. You know, there's no participation yeah. that he wants to do. And really, you know, some of the time you can't you, you can't help these women to conceive, but you can at least help them to just explore their relationship dynamic, you know. And, and, the, and the starting question that I have, if, you know, if the woman's coming in and the man's not going to come in, my starting question is, and how do you feel about that? You know, how does his level of participation in this make you feel? Because sometimes you actually end up counselling the woman out of the relationship because it could be an abusive relationship or, you know, some kind of power dynamic at play that doesn't really serve that woman's purpose. Um, yeah. There's lots of layers to it, but often there's, um, you know the willingness of the man to participate in the treatment is a is an expression of a larger dynamic that's happening at home 
across multiple layers and that in itself is going to be affecting the woman and her um, and her reproductive capacity with that man yeah I think another thing that I've observed over the years too is and maybe because I I live in Queensland this is perhaps a little more common but I think it's common everywhere that the phenomena of fly in fly out so you know, once upon a time, if somebody went to work in the mining industry, the mines actually built towns and families would move and they would live in a town that was adjoining a, a mining a mine and there would be schools there and, you know, families would exist. But over the last 15 or 20 years, it's become cheaper for the mining industry just to fly people by plane in and they stay at camp for however many weeks they're there and then they fly home. That makes having babies really, really difficult. I had a lot of patients in this demographic when I had a clinic on the Gold Coast, Peter, um, yes. around to 2011 through to 2014. Yep. The height uh, of the mining boom. Yeah, and it was like, oh, well, you can see my husband um, once a month yep. <laughs> if his schedule matches up with yours. Yep, and then you'd load him up with herbs or supplements and then he'd come oh. back in a month and he'd say, oh, I don't need any, I'm, I'm fine, I've got enough. Well, I know, because say, I didn't well, get to take them all. You're obviously and not then... taking them because <laughs> I know that you're and not. I saw a lot of men in this scenario too where they were working in extremely hot conditions and they were drinking about six to seven litres of water a day. Yeah, that's right. Deal with that. And I was like, yep. wow, <laughs> your whole reproductive system is just being hijacked just so that you can cope with this environment. And again, you know, this is where us as practitioners having an understanding of the physiology of spermatogenesis is really valuable because like I'll, I'll paint a picture for these men and I'll say, look, I'm not saying that you have to go to work every day commando without your jocks on. But, you know, if you were a Neanderthal and you were walking around here, you would not be wearing underpants your balls would be swinging in the breeze and they'd be swinging in the breeze for a reason because your testes are what we call an homologous structure. So they are to men what the ovary is to the female. But for the ovary to function, it needs to be at an optimal base temperature of around 36.2 to 0.3 degrees Celsius during the follicular phase. But for men, we need the testes to be cooler. So this is why they hang outside. They're not meant to be sucked up to your body with a pair of jocks. They're not meant to be held in place for 20 hours a day with a pair of tight work pants. They're certainly not meant to be wrapped around in fluorescent orange and yellow because you're standing out in the sun and you're going to wear a safety outfit so that some incoming exocet missile can see you. They, they were never meant for that. So you're baking your balls. And I use that expression, you know, you bake them. And we have to figure out a way to cool them down because hot testes fragment sperm yeah. and there you've got your morphology issue and i so again you know having that working knowledge of physiology and delivering that message in a language that resonates to them uh, is really really valuable um because i don't gen generally get that level of discussion from the gp or the fertility doctor you know because it, it invariably goes oh well you've got poor sperm so the pathway forward is that we do IVF and you don't have to worry about it because we'll just pick the best sperm, which is a totally flawed thing 
for anyone to say because visual inspection does not give us any indication about what's going on inside that sperm. And I'm not saying that we have any other clever way of figuring this out either, except to know that we know that external pathogens in the TCM way of thinking like heat will damage the gene. So we have to find the we have to find that pathway to try and repair the gene, or allow that at least create a better environment for the for the gene to regenerate as best they can. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I don't know how you two are going for time, but I wanted to ask Peter if you have any. Um, you mentioned that one of the biggest challenges and achievements for you as a practitioner was in learning how to understand the biomedicine tests and how to translate that into your own diagnosis and treatment uh, within Chinese medicine. And I was wondering if you wanted to rattle off perhaps any acupuncture points or herbs or formulas or anything that you have a new understanding of since you've been able to translate this language through your own processes of observation with the patients that are coming to see you oh have we got six hours <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> well okay I, I, a few things i can say over the years, I have, as a practitioner, come to understand, I think, the unique role that acupuncture plays and the unique role that herbs play. Uh, and I think they both have a role to play. So, um, and I don't know that I necessarily always appreciated that in years gone by, but um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that over the passage of time, my acupuncture practice has become um, the benefit, I think, in that the thing that brings something a bit different to the table is that I see acupuncture as being very much about the chi and the chi's engagement with the blood. I see herbs being very much about, so also therefore, you know, the, the movement of chi and blood around the body. And, and the seeing that as sort of like the carrier agent that transports stuff to where it needs to be in the, in the body in a very homeostatic kind of way. I think I've also, from a, very, from a fertility point of view, I've come to a happy understanding that when we talk about the kidney yin and the kidney yang, we're talking about um, thermogenics, and so if we have an imbalance in those two things, if we have an imbalance, say not enough yin, then we can potentially have a, a relative excess of the yang. The therapeutic consequence of that is that the, the extra warmth will scorch and so therefore will damage the gene. So I, when I teach this stuff, I've got a funky little graphic that I've created that really sums this up, that sort of separates out at the top of it, you know, the chi and the blood, chi being on the left, the blood being on the right, and then down below that, the yang and the yin. And so the horizontal relationship is that the yin engenders the yang and that the yang transforms the yin, and that the chi leads the blood and that the blood engenders the chi. But the chi and the yang are inextricably linked and the blood and the yin are inextricably linked. So at any point in that four point dynamic, 
if one of those things goes wrong, eventually it will find its way to the other three to create pathology. So that's how I explain it to other practitioners. The way I explain that to patients is very different because they don't have that knowledge and I don't think that they really care to know that knowledge and they don't have the depth of the knowledge, but I explained it to them in a way that Chinese medicine, that if we had that particular band sitting there and I was sitting here and we had a fertility doctor sitting next to me, at the end of the day, we're going to be talking about the same man. We're going to be talking about the same problem that he has, but we're going to be looking at it through different sets of glasses. And the glasses that I look at it through is a very circular set of glasses. And the way that the doctor will look at it is a very linear set of glasses. And so we place a lot of emphasis on, um, on the environment for where sperm can develop. And, and by looking at the environment, that includes obstructions to the environment. So cysts or varicoceles or perhaps scar tissue. Um, again, one of the questions I ask in my questionnaire is, have you ever sustained a serious injury to your testes? Most males at some point in their life have copped a cricket ball or a punch or a kick or a child that's squashed them or, you know, that, that's very common. But it's interesting how many men will actually tell you about the time that they had a significant injury, like the man I had that was taking some drugs once and he jumped a fence and he speared his testes with a picket fence oh. when he was 22, you know? Wow. So I try and relate all those life experiences back to how that could manifest to an obstruction of the chi in the blood or dis a, a relation or it's kind of like an imbalance between hot and cold and that we need, we need moisture and we need the right temperature to facilitate the growth of sperm. Like that's basically how I dumb that down. And then I try and link that back to things that they've told me in the questionnaire or that have come up in the conversation that can, ex can account for why they might have the problem that they've got. So, you know, that's kind of condensing a eight hour seminar down into three minutes, but you know, that's kind of the approach that I take with that. You Thank know, you. That's, that's great. <laughs> that's good. I, I wonder if I can get your opinion on this, Peter. Um, it occurred to me, a couple of uh, actually last month when I was running a um, when I was running a seminar for practitioners and we were talking about male fertility and we we're talking about classical formulas and we were talking about the use of the form um, well I guess one of the more commonly known formulas Woods a Young Zong one which is the five yep. and I see eugenic supporter yeah oh there you go you know that you know the name <laughs> in English. Um, and and interestingly, we thought, well, just as an ex just as an exercise, let's look up the classical dose and the classical way it was meant to be prepared because it is meant to be prepared as a one. So, um, for those listeners who've heard our episodes with Simon Feeney and the way that we've discussed, um, you know, preparing tongues as decoctions, preparing sans as powdered raw, and preparing wands as honey pills tends to give better therapeutic effects. Um, and so we were just as a matter of exercise, we went through and looked at, okay, well, what's the amount of herb that goes into this particular formula? And it ended up being, you know, by the time you mix it with honey, it was going to be close to a kilo of, um, of herb mix. You'd end yeah. up in the dosage that you take it at, which was, you know, the number of pills per day 
was going to last around, it was, I think it works out to be about 102 days. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic that back when this formula was invented or was, you know, created or, or thought of, it was built into the instructions that, you know, a man in order to improve his ability to father children would need to take this formula for 100 days, which is, is not far off what we know in modern medicine to be yeah. that period of spermatogenesis. Have you yeah. have you done any thinking on on things like that, or am I the, oh, the only nerd out there? <laughs> no, no, we we can be sperm nerds together, Claire. Um, Excellent. Yes, there's something for the business card. Um, <laughs> sperm nerd, Chinese medicine practitioner, and sperm nerd. <laughs> Love it. Um, I this is yes okay. I'm so pleased that you've brought this up because. Early on, I would talk to people, to men in my process of explaining spermatogenesis, you know, about that it takes about 70 days for the actual spermatogenic activity and at which point the sperm then go and reside in the epididymis, the caput of the epididymis, and they sit there for about another 21 days, and that's where they do their final maturation, and then ejaculation takes place some point thereafter. So generally speaking, we're looking at about a 90 to 100 day life cycle for the the development of the sperm and i what i think i came to understand was that that was in that that men in that left brain thinking what they heard was oh good in three months i'm going to have good sperm again and so in three months time they'd go and have a semen test and be disappointed with the result mm. and so i've really thought about this and i think that I think a lot of what the, what we do, and this is just entirely my my reflection on this. I'm this is just my thinking on it, is about the environment. So it creates the perfect the, the, the better environment. So we adjust the thermodynamics, for example, or we move stagnation that might be impeding testicular function. But just because you start to do that today doesn't mean that everything's rosy and that in three months time you're going to have an improved sperm count because it just doesn't work that way and i've seen it too many times where someone's gone back almost on the day and done that test again because you know they don't really want to be coming for treatment when they could be going and doing something else and they'll go and get it and they'll say oh well the results aren't, aren't what i was looking for even though there are changes in that so i think this is one of the challenges that we face because our medicine is an incremental medicine and it's not necessarily a quick medicine. And if you want fast results, well then, you know, you probably should be doing acute musculoskeletal treatments because you will get fast results with that. Where someone comes in, they've kicked their neck up and you treat it and they walk out feeling 80% better and they come back two or three more times and it's resolved. Um, but when we're doing fertility treatment, you know, we're dealing with the most the deepest layers and the most finite substances. You cannot get anything more refined or more finite than the Jing. So I think when we take a formula, say for a hundred days, that could just be the start of the process. And it might, it may produce a change, but it may not produce the, cha the best change at that point. So I've really over the years tried to change my language around that and to explain that to men that we're you know we're actually 
what we're doing is we're changing, we're fine tuning the environment and that's contingent on a lot of things. It's contingent on what I can do on a physiological level with my herbal medicine or my acupuncture, or any recommendations I might make around, you know, if they're taking a vitamin or healthy eating. But it's also those other things like, you know, if they've got damp heat, well, they just can't be going and drinking beer and having a six pack on a Friday and Saturday night, but they do. So they kind of divorce themselves when it suits them to divorce themselves, but then don't take responsibility necessarily for the, the slower outcome on the other end. So, you know, I think there's only the herbs, acupuncture, supplements, etc., provide a, a really strong foundation for change, but there is also always going to be that other side of it that requires that man to make the changes on the their end of the equation as well. And that's the diet, that's the lifestyle, that's thinking about the types of clothes they wear, um, you know, that sort of thing that we just don't have any influence over. Mm. That's the that's the other part of the story that we just we can advise, but we cannot we can't follow them around all day every day to know that they're actually doing that. And that requires from them a long term investment and commitment to make sure that they're doing the right thing. And I think that's that's often where the process comes unstuck. Has that answered your question? Yeah. We're off on the tangent. Yeah, I think I, I sort no. of tangentialized it. <laughs> that's fine. Tangents are great. We always have tangents on this show. Um, Our show is made of tangents. <laughs> <laughs> All the angles possible. You know, I think, it, you know, and what you mentioned about the, um, the lifestyle changes being you know, being just as important as well. I mean, how many times are we asked, do I really have to stop drinking alcohol? What about caffeine? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Can I have, can I have it just like one beer a day? Like just one? Is that okay? And I say, what? One six pack or one beer? You know, like they want to jockey. They want to, they want to trade you. Well, if I give this up, can I have that? And mm. it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> No, well, I imagine if we could write leave passes for our patients from their own physiology. You know, we we, we could take bribes and all kinds of things. Imagine that. Look, if you just don't have any beer for 12 weeks, I'll write pass on your form and you can have a baby. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because then there's always that, oh, but such and such, you know, my mate, he goes out. He gets really drunk every weekend and they've had four kids. So why do I have to yep. do anything that you tell me? You know, we've all heard it. Yeah. Yep. And and we also hear that from women when they say, oh, I get so angry when I go to the shops and I see that great big fat woman drinking that Slurpee and having a Krispy Kreme donut and she's got four children. That's not fair. And here am I, you know, and I eat organic food and I do this. And yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> but we're, not all, we're not all created equal. That's part of the, That's right. the beauty and the frustration of life sometimes. Well, I, what my response to her is, yes, but you'll probably live long enough to enjoy your children. She's probably going to die of diabetes or have some sort of cardiovascular event when she's 48. Yeah. Not to mention the gift of health that's given to the child it, <laughs> with the, the state of the parent. I used to always say that I don't do fertility work really anymore um, because I found it very, very difficult because of all these reasons um, and moved into kind of different areas. But, uh, you know, I used to always say, well, look, 
the thing is that this person who can get pregnant without trying uh, actually has an imposition compared to you in terms of how consciously they're going to bring this child into the world and and what kind of health they're going to pass on to their child as well. Yeah, it, they're, the, they're the macro questions that a lot of people struggle with. And I think part of the reason they struggle with them is because the nature of reproductive medicine, as in you know, biomedical medicine, is very reductionist. So A plus B will give you C. So we'll stimulate your ovaries, we'll get the best sperm, we'll put them together, and we'll put an embryo back in you. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter working? that you, it doesn't and it doesn't matter that you snort cocaine on Friday and Saturday night or binge drink, you know, like that, that don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> In the oven, out the oven. Ka-ching. Yep. Ka-ching. It's the trans it, this is one of my you're soapboxing me. I promised I wouldn't soapbox, but you know, it's it's the transactional nature of reproductive medicine. Mm. And um it's one of my course to libres in my, my day-to-day work is to try and pull people back from the transactional nature of it. Um, I'll, I'll share, if I may, if we've got time for me to share one more little story of somebody. Um, and this is a person, this, is a, this person, as far as I'm aware, uh, did not end up conceiving a, a child. And when he came to see me, I, that none of that surprises me. So I want to state that from the outset. It was a, probably one of the most complex um, fertility situations that I'd, I'd ever encountered. And he'd pretty much been told that their only option was a donor, to do donor sperm. And he had a, a real problem with that. He, he really wanted to have a child, um, but he wasn't at a place mentally where he was willing, at the, willing to give up on his own ability and wasn't mentally at the space at that point where they would consider a donor. So he came and saw me. So this is where I think having this, you know, knowledge of both systems. And I, I, he brought, fortunately, he had copies of every single thing that he'd ever had tested. And I looked through his tests and, you know, I, I looked for some of the patterns. And the thing that I, I I, and he was very into it. Like he, he, he was the. He did take that in that step. He was responsible for his half of the fertility equation, um, and he, he really understood the, the the issues. So I looked through his um, his tests, and I noticed that he had slightly elevated FSH, and he had slightly low testosterone. So I explained to him how those tests can give an indication of the hypothalamic pituitary and gonadal function. And I, I, I reviewed everything and I said to him, I want to be sure that there's something for us to work with before I say to you, okay, let's embark on six months of treatment. And then at the other end of it, you know, we turn around and nothing much has really changed because it was a very complex Thing. He had a very low sperm count. He had a varicocele as well, a very, very significant varicocele, very big. And, um, and I, so I wanted that full disclosure there. So I sent him off for some, to go back to his doctor to get more tests done. And one of the markers I noticed that he hadn't had tested was inhibin beta. So inhibin beta 
is produced in the testes by the 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 cells that hold the, the, the sperm and so it can be an indicator of spermatic failure so if they have it's a little bit like menopause if a woman has low estrogen and high fsh then that can indicate you know either perimenopause or menopause in the absence of period and so likewise for men if they have low inhibin beta and elevated fsh it's kind of the fsh reading is actually pretty useless if you don't have the inhibin beta reading because it doesn't tell you the full story so i got him to go and get more tests done and he had when it came back he had below reference range inhibin beta he had elevated fsh he had low estradiol estrogen um, and he had the lower levels of testosterone so I painted to him a fairly difficult picture for him going forward. Um, but once we had that discussion, he decided that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to give this treatment because he said, I've got nothing else. The doctors can't give me anything else. This is the, this is it. So I wanted him to be, you know, in a, in a full disclosure sense that he should not hope for a, a miraculous outcome, you know? So, I treated him for about four or five months and I said, well, you know, let's go and do a test. And he, he was very compliant. He cut back. He's, he didn't drink, but he, he did, did all the right things. And I said, let's go and test again and just see what's happening. Now, the interesting thing was that all those reference ranges had gone back into normal. So all those hormone parameters that were sitting outside the ranges all went back to within the normal range whatever the range might mean. I know that's another whole story, but you know, it went back into range, which psychologically for him was impressive, but his sperm count hadn't changed at all. So that has left me wondering many times about the timeline of treatment. You know, was it that we had just really over that five month period done just enough to re-regulate that hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis such that it put it, him in a place where there might have been some substantial change or have we had we just seen everything that we were ever going to see was that the, was that the extent of his improvement and I don't have an answer to that and those are the things that keep me awake at night mm. oh, did they do anything about his varicocele uh, no, you know, he hadn't had it done. It, it was massive. He, he actually showed it to me. Mm. Um, I saw it. It was, it was enormous and he hadn't had it stripped back. No. Mm. And he seemed, and I don't know, that's the stuff that I don't know. We talked about that. And, um, but I think that he had come up against brick walls with his IVF doctors, the, the family IVF doctor, because the IVF doctor was basically saying to him, it's pointless, you're wasting your time. You just should have a donor sperm. Mm. Is that what ended up happening after that five month mark? Oh, well, I don't know. Okay. He stopped coming at that point. So I don't know mm. what ended up happening. And I'm a bit like that. I, I don't like to badger people after they decide that that's the end of their treatment. I'm, I don't like to have issues around that. Sometimes I'll send a how are you going kind of email. Um, but that was what that was when I didn't do that with. So but I just thought it was an it's an interesting story to share because it presents the the depth of complexity of the types of people who come to see us mm. and it's you know 
it, it showed a change. There was a change as a, and that's an important distinction. You know, we look, we're looking for changes, but the change doesn't necessarily lead to the outcome. But what I don't know is, were we just at the start of the change because the, the depth of his pathology mm. and if, had more time would we have seen more substantial change yeah i think you know i've i've only had a handful of patients that have had really really low sperm counts like i had a patient come in a couple of months ago and on his report everything was marked as zero so there wasn't enough sperm for them to be able to assess the morphology or the motility yeah. he, he had seven thousand sperm in total and um, you know and he was coming in because he wanted to be able to bank his sperm so that one day you know if he found a partner that he'd be able to um, you know have the option of having his own children Um, but you know it's such a big and I tell them from the start you know this is going to be a big process we're starting right you know you're even so far behind the eight ball that there's like it's going to take months and I tell them it'll be six to 12 months minimum. Um, and, you know, and a lot of them are just, it's, it's really hard for them to, to make that commitment, particularly if they're not in a relationship and there's not that immediate pressing, um, pressing thing. But um, even the ones who are, you know, it's a long time to, to be committed to a treatment where, um you know, as you as you mentioned earlier, there's not the, the drivers for men in terms of addressing their fertility are very different than women. You know, the the physiological yeah, drivers are different. Especially when, you know, in some circumstances they can just go and have pisa misa or teza, which is the, you know, the extraction of sperm, yeah. and it kind of short circuits the whole process mm. because they get they get the sperm as to whether the sperm has any viable quality is a different matter yeah um but you know i the other interesting thing i remember once having a a man see me who had a very very low count it was in the hundreds and they were wanting to do ivf and so i worked with him over several months and we did improve the numbers but you know they were still never going to be they were still in the hundreds but it increased the number of them so that when they did the IVF, they were able to have a, a bigger selection of sperm. And they banked, they banked, you know, 30 or 40 vials of sperm over a longer period of time. Mm. And the interesting thing was the reason for his infertility was that he'd had cryptorchidism. So cryptorchidism, for those who don't know, is an undescended testy. And they had a son, and guess what? Same problem. Yeah, cryptorchidism, yeah. Mm. But they had a son. They did. Yes, <laughs> they did. Yeah, but I think it's interesting that he had the same same thing happen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we're passing on our jing and that's a really direct um, jing expression too. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I wanted... Yeah, that, well, it's, it's familial inheritance too. Absolutely. I want to I wanna share a story and I'm interested in your insights, Peter. In, and this is, you know, coming full circle back to the, you know, what we're talking about at the start with the, the sexist nature of reproductive medicine. You know, we had a, um, 
I had a patient, this is probably going back 10 years ago, so it was before, you know, a lot of the sperm problems were, I guess, as well talked about as they are now. And I had a couple that came to see me and the woman was very, you know, her FSH was borderline. Um, you know, they were going through IVF. They were getting maybe two eggs per egg collection if they were lucky. Um, and so she definitely had some problems that needed to be addressed. But um, I said to her, look, I'd really like to see your husband. You know, what's his, what's his health like? And, you know, we kind of went through... And, you know, at that stage, I didn't have such a defined checklist as I do now. But, you know, he started losing his hair at um, in his early 20s. Um, he had significant digestive problems, including um, abdominal pain after eating certain foods and um, bleeding from the bowel. Um, he was on asthma medication, all kinds of stuff that just really set off alarm bells for me. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, how is how is his sperm going to be making children? Like, this is just crazy. Anyway, so I got him. Did he have colitis? Oh, who knows? He would never go and get it checked and, you know, no one at IVF even asked because they just said, well, your sperm fits in the the reference range, so let's go for it. Um, But interestingly, I treated him. He agreed to come and see me and, and, you know, we – we made some really great progress and he worked out the things in his diet that were causing his digestive problems and um, the foods that he was eating that was triggering his asthma and removed those from his diet and he felt amazing. And I I'd treated him for about two months, um, after which time his partner um, conceived naturally, but it was, a, it was just a chemical pregnancy. Um, and after that time, they said, right, well, your time's up. We've given you three months. We're out of here. We're off to IVF again. Um, and the thing is that they went through, I saw her periodically a couple of times over the next few years where she would come and see me every time there was a big thing that happened at IVF and they didn't get pregnant. As far as I know, they're still not pregnant. Um But, yeah, she came to see me and said, right, well, you know, I'm now not getting any eggs when they're doing IVF and they've told me that we need to get donor eggs. And I'm like, wow, what about donor sperm? Like you've been, you know, like the whole time there was no question about donor sperm and then they went through the donor eggs and they spent um, however many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on doing the donor eggs and she came to see me a couple of years later and said, well, now we're going to be doing donor sperm. Can you help me to start, you know, not being so close to menopause and, it's, it was just such a fascinating process to watch unfold that from a Chinese medicine point of view, even just from a, from a natural medicine point of view and looking at sperm as a marker of overall health and that, you know, if there's blatant glaring health problems that are, that are standing out, that if we can fix them and if we can fix them easily, that that is usually going to result in improving the sperm and, you know, and the outcome for the couple. And they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and years of their life and, you know, her hormonal health and overall health would be severely compromised as a result of all the treatments. And it was just so, such an obvious case of of sexism to me that they just were so unwilling to look at him for such a long period of time. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, what's the, the statistic that 50% of couples undergoing IVF, it's both partners. So. Mm, tough half. But, yep. And, yeah, and, you know, the other thing that, you know, you, you've kind of alluded to in that that story, but didn't actually didn't say, but from a Chinese medicine point of view, all of that treatment has actually depleted her gene. Yeah. And that's what IVF does. You know, it, the whole point of it is that it's overt stimulation. So it's meant to recruit multiple follicles in a way that would not normally happen in a regular cycle. So it... It, it is actually depleting of the gene. It's shortening the overall re uh, reproductive lifespan of that of that woman by its very nature, such that every time they do that, and, the, and you know the doctors, are, the, the model's a bit cavalier towards that. They don't really put much um, credence into that as being a problem per se. And so you get these situations like where it's actually the male and the focus is not at all on him. It's all on the, the procedure that can be administered to the woman because she, she's the vessel that carries the baby and at the exclusion of the, the other half of the equation. And there's this idea that, you know, we can just select the best sperm, but it's the best sperm by way of visual inspection. And that's all it is. They're just looking at it under a microscope. And they could look at how it performs and perhaps use that as a, as a gauge, but it doesn't really say anything about the overall vitality or viability of that sperm. And so, you know, time again, they stimulate, they get however many follicles, they get however many eggs, they get how many embryos, and then the cycle fails. And it just keeps getting repeated over and over and over. I, I treated somebody once who had done 18 cycles stimulated cycles wow she was 48 eight wow over how many years many over she was 48 and she'd probably been doing them since her mid-30s yeah and so she was 48 wow and gosh. you know and that doctor was still willing to go there so with her money and a lot, oh yes a lot of yep she yeah angst uh, when I teach these seminars you know one of my the lines I use is if a person doesn't have a heart pathology when they start IVF they'll certainly have one when they're finished mm, and that's a sad truth I think you know yeah. the that's what I was saying earlier after my stint working on that Gold Coast near the region that you're in with that demographic it was very IVF heavy and it just I just decided I'm not doing that anymore because it was really heartbreaking for me and I found it very challenging, the steepness of the patient education curve. Yeah, well, that's often the gap that we end up filling. And yeah, yeah it um, sounds like you're you know, doing which, some great work. Well, we, we end up, fill, thank you, we end up filling that, but you know, whether we should be the ones filling it's a different matter because, <laughs> you know, there's a duty of care that, but you know, I, I'm, I'm at pains to point out I'm not anti-IVF and I hope no one thinks that. I think it's remarkable. And I think it's, you know, for the people for whom it works and offers true hope, um, you know, I'm, I'm not anti it at all. And I think that, you know, we have a very valuable place to play alongside that model of medicine too, because it's more than just 
getting pregnant, it's actually having a baby. And so we have wonderful tools at our disposal to help people achieve that dream of parenthood. And I'm, maybe it's the libertarian in me, but if they choose to do the IVF path, well, then it's not my place to judge them for that. I will always welcome to, to my practice and support them in the best way I can. And sometimes that will be where they're only seeing me. And sometimes it will be where they're mostly seeing an IVF doctor. But somewhere in there, the role I have to play is, is fundamental and it's profound. And, um, you know, IVF is here to stay and it's, it's the new normal. You know, it's just seen now, if you don't, haven't fallen pregnant after 12 months, well, then you go to an IVF doctor. And that's what happens. And I don't think anything's going to change that. But hopefully we can, we can be part of that 12 months of trying and helping people to reach their optimum fertility. And, and then if that's not enough, then go to IVF. That's, that's yeah, or, or to, or, yes, mine too, or to fine tune the fundamentals because I keep saying this thing that it's not just about falling pregnant. Mm. You know, IVF's really good at recruiting follicles. It's really good at um, harvesting eggs and it's pretty good, um, well, it's, it's pretty good at recruiting eggs and follicles. It's pretty good at fertilizing them and creating embryos and it's not too bad at putting them back in and putting them getting them in the right spot. But that's about all it does. That's essentially the role of the IVF, but actually having a baby at the other end, there's a lot more. Mm. And that's where our, our knowledge of qi and blood and yin and yang is very important because we can then create the environment to allow that little being to, to grow. Mm. Absolutely. Sometimes hard to, it's sometimes hard to pull people away from that, that, that very micro uh, reductionist view of it, you know, to, to get them to see the bigger picture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Peter, we could talk about this all day. I'm having such a great time. But, um, yeah, me too. <laughs> we have to wrap it up. But the good news is we've been lucky enough to have Peter agree to speak at the, uh, the IICMC Fertility Conference in Melbourne next year. And we're going to have him presenting his wondrous in-depth knowledge on male fertility um, at that conference so I'm very much looking forward to that because we've really only just scraped the tip of the iceberg today in our chat so for anyone who's interested um, we'll have the link for that in the show notes but uh, looking forward to having you come and visit us here in Melbourne next year Peter. Thank you oh, yeah, I'm very honoured to have been invited with such a an esteemed group of um, practitioners as well it's it's um very lovely so i think it it's a wonderful program that you've put together and i like how you've structured it such that people don't have to choose between speakers they'll just see every speaker and that means that they're going to walk away after three days with a, a very dense base of knowledge and lovely and you know rich insights and looking at this, the, the range of speakers, you know, we're, we're all going to come from different aspects as well. So I'm looking forward to that, but it's always a delight to visit Melbourne on my speaking. When I do my seminars, I'll be there again a couple of times before the end of this year. So um, I always like going to Melbourne. I like to think it is my second home. Well, there's always good food and good coffee here. You know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Well, well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Peter. It's been really great to talk to you. And Thank you for having me. Just the tip of that iceberg, but it's such an important topic, you know. And and I just want to say, even if people don't think it's that important, it is important because this is human fertility. This is towards the future of our species, and it's not just whether or not we're having babies and procreating and still fertile, but also just what kind of health and constitutional uh, jing, as it's called in Chinese medicine, um, and genetics that we're passing on to those future generations at this time. I feel fairly passionate about which direction we're kind of steering the species and that this issue in fertility, I feel, is really, really important. So I think there's a lot of bridges to be made between all these topics and I'm curious to see what will be uncovered, you know, by science on these topics over the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, it's going to be a great journey. Well, thank you to our lovely listeners for joining us yet again for a fantastic episode of Heavenly Chi. We've gone way over time and thank you for listening to this whole episode. If you're hearing this, you've got to the end. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> well done. You should get double CPD points. <laughs> Nothing like a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you really enjoyed this episode, please jump on iTunes and give us a rating. It really helps other people find our podcast and for us to share the knowledge. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.